Welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perryman, and I want to begin with some exciting news about a live episode of this podcast that will be part of a one-day convention in Manchester this October. Brought to you by the We Are Court website, my guest will be the writer Paul Mars, and it's on the eve of my birthday, so why not come down and help me celebrate? Everything you need to know about the convention and how to get tickets can be found via a link on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at perfectnightin.tv. Oh, and by a stunning coincidence, the convention's master of ceremonies just happens to be my next guest, the writer, actor, comedian, presenter and professional anorak, Toby Haydoke. He's currently writing a book about Quatermass. Let's go and interrupt him, shall we? Hello, Toby. Hello, Neil. Thanks very much for coming and sharing your perfect night in with us. Well, it's a very great honour. I'm an avid listener, so I'm thrilled. Could you explain to us where your perfect night in would take place? Well, yes, I'm glad this question's back in because I feared it had been lost because everyone said my sofa and front room. I I like the idea of a log cabin surrounded by snow with only high-quality entertainment and a fridge full of goodies. And what are you wearing? Is it a onesie? Well, that's a very personal question. As I've got a bit older, I've taken to wearing slippers and pyjamas. I never used to do either of those things. But pyjama bottom slippers and probably a hoodie. I know. What's become of me? Okay, well, we have that mental picture in our heads as we introduce (laughs) your first choice at six o'clock, and it's going to be a big shock to anybody that knows you. Well, it should be a shock because up until the very last minute, it was going to be a piece of classic Doctor Who. And it was actually going to be the talons of Wen Chiang. But uh, I'm having one of my not being a racist days. Talons of Wen Chiang is is great for many reasons. And one of them isn't because I'm a racist. You just play racist on TV. Uh, Yes, that's right. Yes. (laughs) I do. Gosh, maybe they're trying to tell me something. You've been quite clever here, Toby, because instead of choosing a classic Doctor Who or new Doctor Who, you've actually combined the two. Yeah, and it's interesting because I never thought I would say an episode of New Doctor Who, much as I love it, would be my favourite because I'm very much wedded to the old series and the nostalgia and the childhood and and things like this are all about not so much about the programme itself but about the memories it elicits and all of the the stuff that goes with it. But I've I've found recently it's actually possible to be nostalgic about New Doctor Who because New Doctor Who is now quite old. Correctamundo, a word I have never used before and hopefully never will again. The episode I've chosen is School Reunion, because yes, I say I'm having my cake and eating it, it's new Doctor Who that has old stuff in it. But School Reunion is now, I think, the same age as I think something like The Dominators was when I started watching Doctor Who. So um, uh, at the last minute I chose, I think, to get some extra minutes into my perfect night in, and because... I liked what School Reunion did, which was, it's a great episode of Doctor Who. I think the whole thing with the, the school and the chips and Anthony Head being, a you know, knowing exactly how to play a Doctor Who villain. Um, there's a brilliant bit in the pre-credit sequence where he says to this girl he's about to eat, oh, you poor thin child, and it's rather marvellous. And also the fact that, I mean, when they said that the Sarah Jane and K-9 were coming back, I thought, mm. and I love Sarah Jane, she was my favourite companion, but I just thought, oh, don't put, I'm a self-flagellating fan, I was like, never mind about us, don't do stuff for us, we don't, you don't need to give us Sarah Jane and K-9, we've got K-9 and company, we can always have that, you know, do new stuff. It wasn't an episode I was particularly excited about, because I, I felt it was going to be a bit of a backward step. 
and I absolutely loved it, even though the main thrust of it is that Sarah Jane was in love with Doctor Who, which I still don't think she was. I just ignore that bit. She wasn't in love with the Doctor. That was never a thing. But the episode sort of needs you to think that for the episode to sort of work. So you do this strange cognitive dissonance of going, well, that's not true, but I like the emotion of it. And it's great to see Elizabeth Sladen and the scene where, you know, he meets her again for the first time is really heartbreaking. Hello, Sarah Jane. It's you. Oh, Doctor. Oh, my God, it's you, isn't it? You've regenerated. Yeah, half a dozen times since we last met. You look... incredible. So do you. And then K9, who I'd never been that bothered about, even though he was in it in my formative years of Doctor Who watching, when he sort of sacrifices himself, it's a marvellous moment because it's just a stupid tin dog and you get really sad for it. And it, so it's got lots of things that I sort of love about Doctor Who and the fat kid is the one that, you know, becomes the hero because he blows up the school. And it's it's got lots of sort of lovely little grace notes in amongst a sort of very straightforward but a very well-directed and rather fun Doctor Who story so it's it's never going to be you know an all out sort of Caves of Androzani empty child sort of classic oh, mega Doctor Who but it, it's it's just got so many little ingredients to it that make me love it and it inspired part of, of my show must say my Doctor Who scuff so it's got a personal link for me as well Goodbye old friend Goodbye master You good dog Affirmative I cry at quite a lot when I'm watching telly, and not so much in real life. I think I think television, and sort of particularly ordinary television, if you like, not you know important series or big films. But yeah, when when a regular leaves in Juliet Bravo, I, I weep buckets. And I think it's because television was what I had as a kid. It was it was the sort of only thing I really had that. I, I connected with so I connect with very sort of ordinary television and f- see the profundity in that in the way that I perhaps wouldn't do if you showed me an Eisenstein film I don't know what an Eisenstein film is but it sounds good doesn't it I thought of you on Christmas Day this Christmas just gone great big spaceship overhead I thought oh yeah Betty's up there right on top of it yeah and Rose she was there too did I do something wrong because you never came back for me you just me. I told you. I was called back home and in those days humans weren't allowed. I waited for you. I missed you. Oh, you didn't need me. You were getting on with your life. You were my life. Now the idea that a Doctor Who companion has a stellar career is a big thing, but Elizabeth Sladen, I'm not going to paint her as a failure or anything like that, but she sort of, she stopped acting, she was, and she's brilliant in classic Doctor Who. She is so good, uh, opposite Tom Baker in particular. Brilliant actress. And sort of, you know, cropped up in adverts and a few bits and bobs here and there, but didn't do a massive amount. And then gets a guest slot in a new episode of Doctor Who, and you go, oh, that's quite nice, and they've got the same actress, and isn't that fun? And then suddenly this actress, whose career was pretty much over, is suddenly known to a whole generation of kids again, top-lining her own TV series, and not a sort of, you know, young Buffy the Vampire Slayer-type actress who perhaps could get kids' hormones racing or all that sort of thing, an older woman becoming a role model to a whole new generation of kids. And I think that's fantastic. And a great story for for an actor, too. And I'm a sucker for, for a good story about an actor. 
Goodbye, Doctor. Oh, it's not goodbye. You say it, please. This time. Say it. Goodbye. My Sarah Jane. So, Doctor Who takes up to 6.45, and your second choice will also surprise anybody that knows you. <laughs> I have chosen episode five of Quatermass in the Pit, The Wild Hunt. I'm a big fan of Doctor Who, but I, I do think Quatermass in the Pit is probably the best piece of television ever made. I just, I think it's amazing. Uh, and, and it's funny because Quatermass had always been sort of spoken of in hallowed terms in my house. I'd never seen it, but occasionally it was the late night film and we'd got a couple of books of sort of horror and sci-fi and there was a picture of the Quatermass Martians and it had this great evocative name, isn't it? And then I started sort of discovering Doctor Who on, on, on video and, and realised that a lot of my imagination of what old stuff was like wasn't matched by the reality. And, and I had to learn to sort of overcome my disappointment and, and then love it all over again. And somebody gave me Quatermass in the Pit on VHS and I thought well, okay, you know, I know this has been spoken of in hallowed terms, but it's going to be a bit creaky and probably, you know, a bit hokey. And and I was absolutely bowled over by not only how how good it was, but uh, in terms of a production, but the, the, the imagination that goes into the writing. They're not just straightforward stories. They're really intelligent. Nigel Neal was a genius. Then my mum walked in halfway through. My mum walked in. I went, oh, I remember this. This is where the gravel starts to move. And I, I went, oh, you're probably remembering Doomwatch or something. And because, you know, and literally that at that moment, the actor Richard Shaw falls to the floor and the gravel starts to move. And my mum is, you know, impervious to, to, to sort of quality drama and stuff. She's not, she's not a geek of, of, of any sort. And I thought, gosh, if my mum, who watched this once, what, 30 years ago, has remembered this, this is a sign of quality. And, and of course, the gravel moving is such a famous scene. And I love the fact that the, the man who initiates it is the guy that plays the commander in the Space Museum. And his performance in it, Richard Shaw, this character actor who's in everything, he's got no lines in The Dirty Dozen. He's got one line in A Night to Remember. He's in the Space Museum, for goodness sake. He's in Underworld with a bucket on his head. And he's absolutely fantastic in Quatermass in the Pit. And, he's, and in this episode, the wild hunt he does this whole thing where he's sort of taken back to ancient mars and he conjures a vision of ancient mars five million years ago and it's a brilliant piece of sci-fi acting where you have to do that stuff that sort of suggests alienness but not be hammy not be hokey and not do funny voices and this guy who normally played sort of builders or policemen or whatever is amazing and it's the best performance he ever gave in his career and i wrote to him he was the first actor i wrote to and he wrote me a lovely letter back so he's responsible for everything i've done ever since bless him poor old Richard Shaw. I remember it started and then and I couldn't see anything but them like you took out of the hole with the eyes and the horns we saw and, the creatures. and they were alive alive I've been running hundreds and hundreds and hundreds I knew I was one they ran jumping, leaping leave him alone, where? in and out in big places in and out of them, huge, right up into the sky. The sky? What colour is it, blue? No, dark, dark, purple. 
and it's got so many good scenes the wild hunt it's got the special effects when they show what happened uh, on ancient mars and that's nigel neo being so clever because you've got these insects and insects do a thing where they kill all the the mutations those that aren't quite up to scratch which ties in with sort of Aryan supremacy and the master race wiping out what is different which then ties in with what the Martian spaceship has done to us but also ties in with the war that the country had just undergone very recently there's so much going on there and then he ties it in with ancient magic as well because the wiping out is done through telekinesis and all of this sort of thing you've got all this brilliant stuff going on so he has his cake and eats it because he uses the iconography of black magic so the spaceship's got a pentacle on it because magic and ancient fusty stuff is scarier than people with tinfoil hats on so he sort of cherry picks all the very best bits from different genres and puts it in a very believable setting and because it was a high-end production with a very good producer Rudolf Cartier you've you've got a production that looks really good I mean you know it's a cast of thousands and you know the set of the pit is fantastic I think it's just an extraordinary piece of telly it may be that there are vestiges of it remaining in all of us from the time when they colonized this earth at second hand. Oh, their experiment must have failed, collapsed, got lost in a reversion to savagery, but something remained. The occasional poltergeist outbreak that alarms a street, myths, perhaps even witchcraft itself. Those signs in the hull. That's right. So is as far as anybody is, well, we're the Martians now. And this has just been re-released on Blu-ray, I believe. It has in glorious, uh, restored from the negatives, and I found a whole load of new photos that have uh, that I should have really kept as exclusives for my book, but um, the, the the Spectrum fellow in me didn't want there to be a Blu-ray out there without all the material possible on it, so I've given a load of stuff away that it cost me an absolute fortune to track down nobody will be grateful i'm sure the forums will be awash with people annoyed with the font they're presented uh, alongside or some such but there we go that episode of quatermass in the pit takes up 715 so what have you got for us next toby Buffy taught me a lesson because I was, I think when it was on, I was unemployed. I was living in a flat with my mate. Uh, I was basically drinking a lot, smoking a lot and watching old Doctor Who videos and furious with the world and particularly furious because Doctor Who wasn't on. And I hated anything that wasn't Doctor Who and anything that SFX magazine and all these people championed and went, oh, there's this new science fiction series. It's great. I go, how dare you? It's not Doctor Who. All this American rubbish. It's not Doctor Who. It's going to be awful. It's going to be rubbish. And I and I sort of rejected it. And I watched a couple of episodes. I was like, oh, no, it's just not. And then I I keep sort of coming back to it and go, well, I'll watch this then. And, and found myself then go, when, when's, when's that on next? So what's the plan? Plan schman. Let's mount up. No. Uh, Don may have had the wrong idea in summoning this creature, but I've seen some of these underworld child bride deals and, and they never end well. well. Maybe once. And I think SFX magazine did a special where they sort of did a breakdown of a, a little episode guide to all of the episodes. And I started reading around it and seeing regular characters were coming back and I thought, oh, and then, then somebody I worked with um, mentioned that she really liked it and she had all the videos so I'd borrow them off her and sometimes I'd go into work on the off chance she was in and, and had them and she didn't and I was like oh damn because I was, I, was, I, was, you know, I, was, I was desperate to sort of get the back catalogue on the telly at the time it was the sort of end of or the mid-season 
break of season three, um, so with the mayor and Faith and all of that, you know, I, I, I went back and watched up until that point and then, you know, got every episode as soon as it was available. And it taught me that actually you can love Doctor Who and it be your favourite thing in the world and it be the most important thing in your life in terms of entertainment and, let's be honest, quite a lot of other things. But you can still like other things too and it's not a betrayal. And that new things are actually are actually all right. It's all right to like a new thing. Although uh, I did do some checking that Buffy is now about, is it 23 years old? Oh, God! You got a name? I've got a hundred. Well, I don't know what to call you if you're going to be my brother-in-law. Buffy, I swear I didn't do it. Don't worry. You're not going anywhere. I am. Um, what? Deal's this. I can't kill you. You take me to Hell's villainer place. <laughs> what if I kill you? Trust me. Won't help. Mm, that's gloomy. That's life. So when I was choosing this, uh, this stuff, I thought, you know, don't just be Mr. Old stuff is good and new stuff is bad. Choose some new stuff. So Buffy is me choosing some new stuff to prove that I'm not just some stuck-in-my-ways oldster. You've chosen a very atypical episode of Buffy. I listened to Ian Berriman very sagely choose the Zeppo, which is not one of the obvious ones to choose. And uh, Ian is, ob- is, is, a, you know, is a connoisseur. And I was choosing between Hush... Uh, which has got sp- spooky monsters and nobody talks and is very clever and has a metaphor at the heart of its very well-told horror story, or The Body, which is the most extraordinary um, evocation of what death is like. Uh, and, and, and I thought, well, I've already cried at school reunion and I'm going to be doing some crying later. So do I really want to cry at Buffy? And then I thought, well, should I go for one of the less obvious episodes? And then I thought, oh, no, I haven't thought of the most obvious episode at all, which is the one I've watched the most, which is the musical, Once More with Feeling. Because what is very brave, it is an atypical episode because it's a musical, but also what they don't do is go, oh, so this is the one we're just going to show off and do a bit of a musical that would be funny. Like, like the X-Files might do a sort of episode that's suddenly in this strange, different world that they then forget about next week. In, in the musical episode, all of the characters go through really important changes in their character. Anthony Stewart's character decides that he's going to go. Uh, Buffy reveals to her friends that when they thought they'd resurrected her and taken her out of a hell dimension, she was actually in heaven and fine. And, and it's all this sort of big, meaty, horrible stuff in the episode that could have been the sort of curio, the bottle, the strange, the offbeat. So I thought that was very brave, and it's also extremely well done. And I really like the villain. Um, and he's got this great bit where he does the, this number where his suit changes colour halfway through, and they've got a proper musical theatre actor to play. I keep calling it, he's not Matthew Sweet, but I think he's called Sweet. Uh, <laughs> let's call him Matthew Sweet. Hinton Battler's Matthew Sweet. Back we will go to my kingdom below and you will be my queen Cause I know what you feel Now you see, you and me wouldn't be very real I'll make it real What a I'm 15, so this queen thing's legal I can bring whole cities to ruin And still have time to get us off shoeing Now that's great, but I'm late And I'd hate to delay The Slayer? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar is so good as Buffy. It's very easy sometimes to take for granted that the acting in some of these shows is absolutely terrific. It was a show that was quite sort of 
cool. It suddenly made being being nerdy, being cool. And I never felt I earned any of that coolness, but uh, I was grateful they were out there being cool on my behalf. And some of the lines are brilliant. There's a, Giles has a line about watching the police taking witness arias. <laughs> and, uh, it's, you know, it's a funny show and it's clever. And, and the worry with doing a musical is that it could be a bit, oh, look at us being sort of smart ass. And it's actually, the emotion is very real. The jokes are very good uh, and they all do it very well. I've got a Buffy takes up to eight o'clock, and I don't know about you, Toby, but I'm feeling a bit peckish. Can I get you something to eat? Yes, well, I'm, I've gone modern again, um, but this is because uh, I've, there's a new snack out. What are they called? Are they called Walker's Mix-Ups? They are a mixer. They have a Dorito in them. They have a French fry in them. They have a, a What's It in them, and they have a Monster Munch in them. And I, I'm one of those people that if we go out, I like to have tapas where you have a bit of everything, you know, um, or I like to share the thing the other person's had. And, and so this gives me four snacks for the price of one. So it's a thrifty, frugal choice that appeals to my need for eclecticism. These new Walker's cheesy mix-ups are good. All our favourites in one bag. Monster Munch. Love those. My ears pricked up at the mention of Monster Munch. What flavour Monster Munch is in the bag? Well, now here you see, I've thought long and hard about this. When I first started listening, my knee-jerk reaction was pickled onion. And then I thought, but actually, recently I haven't been buying pickled onion. I like the sourness of a pickled onion. But they seem, as I get older, they seem a bit insipid. And I quite like the dusky brown heft of the roast beef. But actually, if I, if I was forced to choose one for one night, I think I'd go for the flaming Hot. Mega Monster Munch, they're mega filling and hot. I'd like to say a thank you, Toby, for giving this, this question the amount of thought it deserves. <laughs> We're now at eight o'clock, and your next choice, well, let's get the tissues handy, shall we? I'd forgotten there's, there's another one to cry to. What is it about me and crying? It's because I'm not in touch with my emotion. I need popular entertainment to just ease it out of me, you know. It's the catharsis of entertainment. Yes, cold it, Tweedledum. I first heard of it in Kenneth Branagh's autobiography where he mentioned being transfixed by this acting performance of Michael Bryant, who's the guest star. He's not a regular in the show. He's the guest star of this particular week's Cold It's. Uh, Cold It's is a you know war drama that does what it says on the tin. I think, I think Secret Army is a, is a better series, actually, the one that, that came afterwards, but it was less easy for me to choose a particular episode of that. But I'd urge anyone who can to watch Secret Army, I think Secret Army is brilliant and it really stands the test of time but this episode of cold it's has michael bryant playing is it wing commander marsh and it's based on a true story apparently who decides to fake insanity in order to be repatriated and he has assigned this guard played by somebody i didn't recognize the first time i actually watched it who's this big shaven headed bloke whose brother been committed to a lunatic asylum so is therefore concerned that uh, when Commander Marsh is faking it and is, is is assigned to sort of keep watch over him and actually treats him quite badly, but by the end of it becomes sort of his only friend. And that's Bernard Kay, who, who became a friend of mine later in his life. But I think and every, all the plaudits always go to 
Michael Bryant, quite rightly, because it's a brilliant performance. But it, it wouldn't work without Bernard being this sort of very stoic man who's, you could tell he can't quite show his emotion because his job won't let him and because he's quite conflicted and because he's quite a sort of simple bear of a man. And it's a brilliant performance. I think it's Bernard's best performance and he gave a lot. And, and he makes me cry as much as Michael Bryant does. What do you think? You've been watching him for some weeks now, haven't you? Three and a half months, sir. So, well, is it crazy or not? I think the doctor should decide. Never mind what the doctors say. What do you think? I'm not sure. At first I was. I was sure he was faking. Good, but faking. It made me very angry. You understand, sir? My brother? Yes, yes. It is very difficult. Before they took him away to the asylum, he was very like this man, Marsh. I do not know. Wing Commander Marsh was so like him, but I do not know. He may be very clever. And the scene where they're sort of torn from each other at the end is heartbreaking. And there's a horrible twist in the tale as well. And, and actually it was repeated as part of the BBC's Hearts and Minds series where it was about, about mental health. And, and so I, I made sure I watched it then because Kenneth Branagh had mentioned it in his autobiography. And The Independent did a blood, you know, in their pick of the week, they went, oh, and the BBC show, an old episode of Cold, it's, huh, oh, floodlit videotape drama and, you know, with wobbly sets. And this is the, you know, this is the television critic of The Independent. You go, oh, who are these people? Why is it that to get paid to write about popular culture, you can have such lofty disdain for the very thing that you're supposed to be... To, you, would, you wouldn't have somebody writing the food column who thought aubergines were twats, would you? And, uh, 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 and it infuriated me that instead of going, there's an amazing performance from Michael Bryant, and it's good to see that character actor, Bernard Kay, blah, 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 just to trot out the same old rubbish any unimaginative idiot you know who doesn't care about television would I, I think there's no honor to be gained from being as i say disdainful of the very thing you're earning a living writing about and its history which you clearly don't understand they're never coming on this show sorry there was a bit of a rant there but and, and it's and then i got the whole series on dvd and actually it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a very good series but i i do think tweedledum particularly stands out i mean the regular cast jack headley is brilliant and bernard hepton is super it's a shame that bernard hepton is not in tweedledum all that much i think he's only got the one scene because Bernard Hepton as the commandant is brilliant and it's a very even-handed portrayal of, of, of the Germans. And Although then Anthony Valentine comes in and is a swine, but he's still, but he's still very good and nuanced. And it's the, those sort of everyday, oh, it's just that show that's on the telly dramas that were on in those days were so good and so stuffed with good actors. But Tweedledum is particularly good. It's one of those shows that, you know, you know what we like when, when we try and influence people. You know, somebody comes around and go, have you ever seen the Colditz episode, Tweedledum? Well, sit down and watch this then. It's one that I hope people go out and avail themselves of because they won't be sorry. This could be pretty rough, Wing Commander. You realise that the Swiss may not make an appearance for six months. I realise that. I know what I'm up against. Oh, George. You have to do this so well. And you have to convince me, in a sense. You have to convince the German medical people and the protecting power. I don't say you can't, but, well, I just wish you wouldn't try. I've made up my mind. I'd like to have a crack at it. Just when you think you've got the, the angle on, on Michael Bryant, you're, nev you're never quite, because he fools you as well as fooling the Germans. You think, oh, well, he's lost it now. And then he, then he winks at Geoffrey Palmer and you go, oh, God, no, he hasn't. And so actually the other thing is that that very touching story he has with 
Bernard Kay and, and Bernard, you know, becomes to be his protector is actually bred from dishonesty. Um, so there's deceit at the heart of this actual very touching bond that they have, which is very sort of complex and, and interesting stuff. Yeah, it's so well done. Cold it takes up to nine o'clock and I think it's time for us to take a quick break. We're going to have an end of part one in the show from now on. So which, which advert would you like to play while we pop off to the loo? I'm going to choose that small story that can't fail to put a smile on your face while advertising a glorified phone book. This is the J.R. Hartley Yellow Pages commercial. I don't suppose you have a copy of Fly Fishing by J.R. Hartley. It is rather old. It's by J.R. Hartley. Nostalgia is an interesting thing because I don't think I particularly enjoyed my childhood and it wasn't because I wasn't fortunate enough in my surroundings or anything like that. But um, it's, it's interesting now how I'm comforted with stuff from a time that actually at the time I found quite hard. And, and I think it's all to do with the connection that we have, which is I guess why I'm attracted to the profession and the stuff of these of these things that we let into our home. And I do think there's something quite profound about something that is just a way of hawking wares. Let's be honest, an advert TV commercial could be a sort of heartwarming thing. And I know it's easy to be, and it, actually it's very easy to be cynical about advertising. Oh, advertise on. But I love the story of that Yellow Pages advert. And I, I don't care that it was designed to sell. Well, you didn't buy the Yellow Pages anyway, did you? It just just landed on your doorstep but i think the story of jr hartley is a rather beautiful thing i love the fact that it will forever immortalize an actor norman lumsden he was called who who i don't think i've seen in anything else and yet this uh, this rather venerable old gent will forever be you know immortalized as the man who finally got his book and i think it's lovely that he finally got his book although who threw away his original i don't know i'd have been livid no luck dad Never mind. There's still a few more to try. Good old yellow pages. We don't just help with the nasty things in life, like a blocked drain. We're there for the nice things, too. You do? Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, can you keep it for me? My name, oh yes, it's J.R. Hartley. I don't want to be traipsing around in 20 years' time, go running through corridors by Toby Hayduke. There's one copy left on eBay for £1,000. <laughs> yeah, God. OK, Toby, it's part two. It's nine o'clock. What have you got for us next? Well, I've gone for some comedy. I mean, you would, you would think a, a professional comedian... I think this is one of my downfalls, because I know a, a lot of comics I know are sort of you know, acolytes of comedy and great studiers of comedy. And I did watch a lot of comedy as a kid, but I didn't record much. But I did record this because it's a comedy documentary about an actor, and it is the venerable actor Norbert Smith. Uh, and it's a sort of South Bank show special presented by a very straight-faced Melvin Bragg, who's brilliant in it, giving a history of the life of a fictional actor played by Harry Enfield called Norbert Smith, whose career takes him through every sort of film genre and type of film stock of everything, you know, throughout 20th century sort of British filmmaking. And it's a wonderful, affectionate spoof with loads of great lines and loads of great characters, and, and Harry Enfield's brilliant in it. So, Norbert, before you made your film debut in 1936, you had, of course, appeared in several notable stage productions, hadn't you? Yes, I had. Had I? Yes. Yes. Yes, I had. Yes. In fact, you 
once performed with the young Sir John Gielgud. Yes, I performed with him before he was Sir John, when he was playing Larry Olivier. I was uh, bottom to his front end of pantomime horse in the Scottish pantomime. The Scottish pantomime? Yes, that's not his real name, of course. Uh, I never say its real name. No? No, no, oh no. No, I never say its real name, because you see, I can't remember it. It was the first time I'd heard the phrase, it's grim up north. Now, I don't know if, if it came from there, but, but he's in a kitchen sink drama with, with Joe McGann called It's Grim Up North, where he just sits there going, I'll take my belt to you. And it's very funny. And, and I watched Where Eagles Dare the other day, and they have a Where Eagles Dare spoof in it called The Dogs of Death. Uh, and it's basically Norbert Smith and lots of really other old drunk actors storming the castle. And its closeness in accuracy to Where Eagles Dare is frightening. And there's a brilliant bit where he's sort of pointing the gun with a shaking hand in one hand, and he's got a glass of wine in the other. And, the, and he gives this look at this glass of wine as if to say, I want to drink you before I shoot this man. And it's quite marvellous. Finally, you decided to take treatment for your alcohol problem, and it worked. Yes, it did. Uh, cure's very simple, really. They told me I had to give up completely all beer, wine and spirits. And so I did. Would you like a sherry? And all of the film spoofs are very, very beautifully observed and, and rendered and very accurately done. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a spoof documentary with lots of lovely acting jokes. And I'm a, as I say, I'm a sucker for anything about the, the profession, really. And this this judges it very nicely. And, and, and Melvin, Melvin Brecks, there's a bit where they're driving in the car and Norbert Smith keeps crashing into things. He just says, can I get out now, please? And it's very funny. Do you, do you have any uh, particular memories of the stage? Well, it all seems so very far away now. Why do some things seem quite close to <laughs> Him, for instance. It, he's a sort of amalgam of uh, Olivier and Richard Burton. And there's a bit of Tony Hancock as well, because they do the famous face-to-face interview. That I don't know if you remember that Tony Hancock did this rather sad one where he cut a rather tragic figure. And it's the famous interview where it's always this sort of stark, uh, highly contrasted black and white film, and you never see the interviewer. In this case, it's Jeffrey Chater, which is delightful to have him turning up, and um, even though you don't see him. And he's brilliant because Norbert Smith's there smoking a fag and drinking and looking like he's just been pulled out the back of a hedge. And it's sort of terribly sad, but also really funny. Sir Norbert, you've been an extremely prominent figure in the theatre and the cinema for 25 years. I'd like to begin, if I may, by saying, why are you so hopeless? Uh, I don't think I am, really. Forgive me for saying this, but you're a complete alcoholic and a lousy actor. I've always thought I was a rather good actor. I hope you'll excuse me for saying this, but you're useless. All of the films you've been in have been total rubbish, and the last three made me physically vomit. They're all sort of vaguely based on things that actually happened. The, the Hamlet film that they have looks very like Olivier's Hamlet film, except it's got additional dialogue by Noel Coward. <laughs> um, so um, it's, it's, you know, you get it more if you know the sort of genres of the films that you're watching, but the go- jokes and the characters are, are still very funny. They live in a converted vicarage. It used to be an old country house, but we've had it converted into a vicarage. I mean, the subcracking lines. <laughs> So, Norbert, a lot of people were upset that you chose to play Nelson Mandela. Well, there's really no other choice. Why was that? Well, Sir Alec Guinness simply wasn't available. 
I watched it and liked it and then it was repeated and it was one of the first things I've it's one of my proudest achievements I still have my VHS upstairs even though I do now have it on DVD is that my editing of the advert breaks was absolutely frame perfect I'd learned to press pause and then it rolled back you know but three three notches bore four and then it rolled back and anyway and I got I got the adverts edited out my copy of the hand of fear was a super channel copy but of the omnibus and then I'd got a lower generation copy to put the credits and the cliffhangers back in and I got the my you seamless except for the fact that it then went into it changed into black and white you know t- t- two seconds before the end of the episode didn't matter it was absolutely seamless Norbert Smith takes up to 10 o'clock even with the adverts cut out so what have you got for us next Toby The Singing Detective this is an interesting choice because it's it's not a programme I've watched as often as I've watched, say, various episodes of Doctor Who and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But it, it's quite an important programme for me because uh, I remember where I was when I watched it. It was just my mum and me on, on my own. I think my brothers and sisters all moved out by this point. Uh, and Dennis Potter sort of returned to television. It was a, a big talking point. I remember it was a big show. And this extraordinary vision of Michael Gambon absolutely covered in psoriasis-ridden skin, uh, which little did I know I would be one day. I've, never, I've sadly never been in the convalescent hands of Joanne Wally whilst being in hospital, but I'm, I'm a sufferer of psoriasis and, and have been since around that time. I'm not sure if my psoriasis predates the singing detective. I don't think it does. I think I went down with it shortly afterwards, but I can't remember. But also, you know, the vanity aside of going, well, I have a personal connection. But I hope most good television speak to us all personally in different ways. It's an extraordinary synthesis of fantasy and reality. He has a whole speech in the first episode when he's being greased by Joanne Wally because that's what happens when you're, you're so in so much pain you can't move. Um, you have to keep being sort of lubricated. And, and to stop himself getting aroused, he, he lists all the things that really bore him. And it's so funny. Think of something boring, for Christ's sake. Think of something very, very, very boring. A speech. A speech by Ted Heath. A sentence, a long sentence from Bernard Levin. A quiz by Christopher Booker. Oh, oh no, no, think, 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 think. Really boring. A Welsh male voice choir. Everything in punch. Oh. Oh, poor thing. Oh, wage rates in Peru. James Burke, Pennington's Wake, all the bloody Irish, the dog in Blue Peter, Brian Clough, and especially James, Henry Ann Clive. Australian barman, ecologist, semiologist. Think, think. Guardian Woman's Page. Oh, dear Christ. And, and the sort of sharp, cynical, laconic humour that shoots through this sort of abject misery and sadness that's all tied in with his childhood that is tragic. But also he's his own worst enemy. He's a bit of a shit as well. Uh, and then he goes into the sort of fantasy world, which is all about, again, sort of what we're celebrating here, the sort of joys of the pulpy, the, you know, the, the, the poetry and the incandescent delight that you can take in something that's actually ordinary, has no highfalutin ambition, which I think is, I think is somehow more profound than something that's self-consciously artistic, you know, which is why I think I've always been drawn to it a little bit more. It has all that sort of stuff in it, and it has a hospital ward singing Dem Bones, you know, which is hugely entertaining, but also, you know, thematically apposite. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of telly. Barbiturate. Antidepressants. Valium. And Librium. Ezekiel cried. Dem. 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 Dem
bones, Ezekiel cried. Dead, dry bones, now hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel connected him. Are you a fan of Dennis Potter's work in general? Am I a fan of his work? Yes, some of it. Some of it I find quite hard to take, but I think that's all right. I think it was a time when you could be a writer who could do something that didn't quite work, but there was still enough in it where you'd go, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to take this on. And sometimes you take him on, because I am I think I've read quite a lot of biographies and interviews and various other things. You know, I, th- I think he had a meanness in him, and he, and he obviously had a very complicated relationship with sex, but I think that's it. He's 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 unsparing in himself about the way that he that he deals with sex. And I, I think sometimes what is called is his misogyny. I think sometimes he's perhaps just being honest about what uh, what happens in the darkest recesses of the male mind, and is is brave enough to say so. And uh, uh, and and actually, that's something that's worth examining. Um, frightening, I think, at times. So I think he's very brave in that sense. But as I say, I don't. I'm not sure he was necessarily the kindest man sometimes and and I'm not sure I would have wanted to be a a young woman who'd piqued his interest but he's also very hard on himself and self-flagellating and also very funny and also hugely intelligent so complicated but I like complicated What do you believe in? Malthusianism Come again? Malthus, but mandatorily Compulsory depopulation by infanticide, suicide, genocide, or whatever other means suggest themselves. AIDS, for example, that'll do. Why should queers be so special? I see. I also believe in cigarettes, cholesterol, alcohol, carbon monoxide, masturbation, the Arts Council, nuclear weapons, uh, the Daily Telegraph, and not properly labelling fatal poisons. But above all else, most of all, I believe in the one thing that can come out of people's mouths... Vomit. The Singing Detective takes up to 11 o'clock, which means it's time for your penultimate choice. I was attracted to our friends in the North because it had a good cast. I mean, it had a good cast then, and the two of them hadn't played Doctor Who and James Bond at that point. And, and that good central quartet of Christopher Eccleston, Gina McKee, uh, Mark Strong and Daniel Craig, who are four Geordie friends, and we meet them when they're the end of their teenage life, just becoming adults, and we see them at sort of five to seven year intervals from then up until uh, 1995, which is the last episode, which is the episode I've chosen, which I'll, I'll explain why later. And in that, they take in a broad spectrum of the social and political changes that occurred through there from from all sides of the political spectrum because Eccleston's character is a, a sort of left-wing firebrand, socially conscious, uh, you know, who wants to change the world. Tosca, played by Mark Strong, becomes a sort of Masonic, uh, self-made man who thrives in the Thatcher era. And beautifully, I was watching the last episode again um, to remind myself of it, but he's not the villain. He's a bit of a dick. You don't like him early on, but actually Mark Strong gives him makes him so likeable and actually he's a simple guy who's just trying to succeed the way that he wants to succeed and actually Eccleston's character who is the sort of moral centre of it is actually a bit of a self-righteous dick at points and, 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 and Gina McKee who is the wise one you know her son gives her his big speech in the final episode where he says I lived with a martyr all my life and, and, and so all of these people their morality is always put into some sort of perspective against their humanity and there's nobody purely good nobody purely bad everyone has little character moments our our sympathies towards them shift but there's still an affection for them all throughout did i meet you once in the bullring yeah 
Yeah, that was me. I didn't know if it was real. It was out in my head for a bit, you know? Well, so was I. I did come back, you know. I did try to find you. It was a bad time. The worst I've had. So far. <laughs> Me too. But the reason I've chosen the last episode is because Peter Vaughan's performance as Christopher Eccleston's dad, who's a, who's a bit of a bullish bugger, but a committed socialist, a principled left-winger, uh, who'd been on the Jarrow marches, who's a big, strong, tough, uh, uncompromising father figure, who by the last episode is is riddled with Alzheimer's and having his bum wiped and not making much sense. And there's a brilliant scene where Christopher Eccleston has to feed him and, and Eccleston's brilliant in it about the sort of, the, the fact that he's been lumbered with this old man, but also he feels this sort of guilt. And so he tries to do the right thing by taking his dad to see Mrs. Warboys, uh, who, who was there during the Jarrow March, who'd remembered this young man and, and the songs that they sang. And he, and he gets her to sing the song to try and remind Felix of what he was and to show Show him that the Jarrow March hadn't been a failure because somebody tells Christopher Eccleston character that that the reason his dad had had been such a, a, an overbearing and bullish man was because he, he'd never recovered from the fact that they felt that the Jarrow March had failed and so it's going to be this big final wonderful moment between dad and son where the son who's never got on with his dad proves to his dad that the Jarrah March wasn't for nothing and this woman sings in the song to try and stir the memories deep within this Alzheimer's mind and, and he looks at Christopher Eccleston and he shits himself and Christopher Eccleston has to say can we use you Lou and then I think we'll go and he drives him back and he just says you're a bastard do you know that you're a bastard dad you were a bastard to me when I was little, and you were a bastard to me when I grew up, and now you're an old bastard. And you know what, Dad? It doesn't matter anymore. And it's not the great um, heartfelt reckoning. And there's, there's also a kid in it who's the next generation, who Daniel Craig's character you think is going to save or give some solace to or give some help to, and and, and he goes on a joyride and he he dies. And so there's no, and even though, and there's a nice moment between all four characters at the end where the little things actually the little things where Mark Strong's character and Christopher Eccleston's character, they have a sort of acknowledgement, and it's not a big moment or anything like that, but it's through all these big political changes, actually it's the people and the little relationships that we have that are sort of sometimes more important throughout all those big seismic shifts that seem so important at the time, which is perhaps hopefully something that can give us some sort of solace during this current political flux that we're going through, that actually we somehow manage to ride all that if we, if, if, if we keep the people that are important close to us. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a hell of an achievement. It's brilliantly scripted. How he wrestled Peter Flannery, the writer, that big time period, and yet let all those characters live and breathe and, you know, reflected some quite big political stories so brilliantly. And it's a, it's a triumph of television. Well, I don't know about you, but I definitely need a drink after that. What can I get you, Toby? Well, I've sort of cheated because I'm assuming it's my perfect night in because there's an imminent apocalypse or I'm about to top myself. So I'm a non-drinker for no reasons that have any hilarious or joyous stories attached to them. Uh, but for this, but because this is a fictional thing, I've decided that I'm going to treat myself to something that I wouldn't be able to have in real life, which is a very peaty and medicinal and gloriously aged Lafroy whiskey because it would 
warm the cockles in this fictional world that I'm temporarily taking solace in. Okay, I'll get you one of those while you start your final choice. It's midnight. Well, I had to have something that wasn't obvious. I felt I, I feel my choices have been a bit obvious, uh, and it was only when I'd submitted them to you that I thought of all sorts of things I, I hadn't chosen. But I had to choose a comedy. I'm I, I am a comedian. I have to constantly remind myself of this that I'm supposed. I'm sure I'm invited on these things to be funny, and I always fail because uh, I always get terribly serious. And there are any number of comedies I could have chosen. Somebody's already chosen the Cribbins episode of Faulty Towers. That would have done me nicely. Nearly chose Yes Minister because I love the the writing and those actors. Blackadder was so important to me as a as a kid. Drop the Dead Donkey was a slightly left field one. But in the end, I went for one that I discovered, and and is one I still think perhaps isn't isn't as well known as it might be. And perhaps somebody listening to this might not have sampled and should. And I went to it because, as I always do, rather predictably, it had got a good cast. And I thought I was just going to be watching a sitcom with three very good actors being funny. And those actors are Robert Lindsay, David Threlfall, who then was known as a, you know, a fine classical actor, and uh, James Ellis, Jimmy Ellis. And it's called Nightingales. And uh, the first episode I watched, which is the episode I've chosen, I'm not sure it's the best episode of the show, but it's, it's the one that got me into it, which is the first episode of Series 2, which is where they're preparing for their Christmas party. It's, it's three security guards in an old building. Robert Lindsay is that, that classic sitcom character of the sort of failed man with literary aspirations and ideas above his station. Uh, and it comes from a long line of those sort of characters. David Threlfall, who again, let's not forget, at that time hadn't done Shameless. He was this rather serious classical actor, plays this thug ding-dong, because he's called Bell, uh, this very simple thug who's prone to sudden outbursts of extraordinarily well-phrased wisdom, but all done in this sort of funny voice. And the Sarge is Jimmy Ellis at his most twinkly and avuncular. And they get visited on Christmas Eve. They're, they're, they're disappointed that the people they've invited to their Christmas party haven't turned out because they've invited the Pope and Harold Pinter. Uh, which says, and then this woman turns up called Mary and she's pregnant. And, and they say that they'll look after her, but they make her sign a contract uh, to promise that she's not, she's not an allegory. So you, you, I was suddenly watching this going, oh, I don't think this is quite a normal sitcom. The normal rules don't apply. I know what you're thinking. It's not an allegory. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, really? Says who? And you wouldn't have a husband beginning with J, would you? It's Carlos. His name was Carlos. Was? You said his name was Carlos. Dead. Two months ago. Where he was... He was doing this sponsored walk across the Sahara Desert and he tripped and fell into an oasis. (laughs) Drowned. Drowned. And I think if this had been on the week that Father Ted premiered in Father Ted's place, it would now be seen as one of the great classic sitcoms. I don't think the world was quite ready for it, and it only did two series. But I think every episode is marvellous. They get visited by a werewolf in one episode, and, and, and Mary does have the baby, but it's, it's a goldfish. She has a goldfish and a washing. It was, it was when they bring out a washing machine from the maternity room that I... That, Yeah, that I really thought, oh, okay, I really like this series. All right, now, you've had your bit of fun. Get out. Oh, don't worry. I'm going. Where? To see my husband. Carlos? No. 
His name is Joseph. And we came to pay our taxes. Goodbye, suckers. It's, it's brilliant. They're, all the actors are great. Uh, the music's lovely. Robert Lindsay does the thing of singing the theme tune at the end. He does a lovely version of Nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. There was magic daft without being stupid and it never fails to put a smile on my face and again it's one of those ones that I would take great pride in sort of nudging in somebody's direction if they've not seen it. So here's Toby Haydoke's Perfect Night In. It all kicks off at six o'clock with the school reunion episode of Doctor Who featuring the return of Sarah Jane Smith and K-9. Episode 5 of Quatermass and the Pit follows at 6.45, culminating in a wild hunt. And the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is at 7.15. Michael Bryant's ambitious plan to escape from Colditz ends in madness at 8 o'clock. And then at 9, Melvin Bragg is there as Norbert Smith reflects on a long career in drama. Speaking of drama, we have two hours of it starting at 10, taking in the premiere episode of The Singing Detective, and then at 11, the finale of Our Friends in the North. It all ends at midnight with The Nightingale's Christmas Special. Perhaps the Pope and Harold Pinter will make an appearance. Watch this lot, and it will greatly improve your status with the audience at the Shanklin Hippodrome. It might even make you laugh. Okay, Toby, one final question for you is, who would you like to share your perfect night in with, living or dead? Oh, I didn't know I could share it with dead people. I spend most of my life surrounded by their dead. I never had friends who were sort of um, sort of telly geeks or Doctor Who geeks for many years because I lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and it had always been a rather solo pursuit. So it was only when I sort of did the Doctor Who-y thing and met lovely people like you who spoke the same language that I, that I realised there's I opened up a whole social circle for me, which I've sort of come to value very, very highly. There's, there's two gentlemen in whose company I've spent a lot of time and I would like to be the meat in a Simon Harry's and Ed Stradling sandwich. Both will appreciate the stuff but Simon will be glibly cynical and dryly dismissive of any shortcomings in a very entertaining way. And Ed would probably be furious about aspect ratio or conversion rates or something like that. And so I think, yeah, I think I'd have fun with those two boys watching my perfect night in in my log cabin. I don't know what we'd do afterwards. Perish the thought. But uh... I don't want to know. <laughs> Thanks, Toby. It's my pleasure. Can I get out, please?